Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. The sequel to the 1992 movie Sister Act where Whoopi Goldberg becomes a nun in witness protection and directs a church choir. The sequel to that movie is called Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, which I only mention because in a week of difficulty for many of us in the church, the title Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit makes for a really funny sermon title (laughs) for our sermon today, Um, given the time that we've been spending since June with Abraham in the book of Genesis. And it's funny, but it's a bit of dark humor, isn't it? Because in our reading today, we see Abraham reverting to an old habit that he had relied on decades ago to placate a regional king while he sojourned in their kingdom. You see, Abraham lived a nomad's life, if he hadn't figured it out yet. And what Abraham had were these massive herds and flocks of livestock, And what he would do is he would take this massive herd of livestock um, to wherever the pastures were verdant enough for them to eat. So he might take them to this one field, this one region where there had been some rain and the grass was long, and he'd let them eat there for a spell. Then he'd pack up all his tents, he'd pack up all his people and move them somewhere else. And so he had this life where he kept moving from place to place. And in our story today, um, Abraham's nomadic travels take him to the city-state of Gerar, Gerar, I'm going to say Gerar. I didn't look up the Hebrew, so we're going to stick with Gerar for now. And actually, this is a big deal. Because for the second time in the book of Genesis, Abraham is entering the territory of a king who does not fear God and presumably likes to take women, all the women, for himself. And so in a reflection of what Abraham did back in Genesis 12 when he sojourned in the nation of Egypt, Abraham enters the region of Gerar with fear. Will this ungodly king um, want uh, this wife of mine for myself, for himself? Will this ungodly king go so far as to kill me to take my wife? Will this ungodly king become so jealous because I have this massive flock, this massive estate, and all these servants that he will then take my wife and then kill me uh, and then marry my wife so he can have all of my things? These are all of the things going through Abraham's mind as he takes his flock, his herds, into Gerar, that region, to graze and to grow. And so Abraham and Sarah hatch a familiar plot. For now, Abraham and Sarah will not announce themselves as husband and wife, but as brother and sister. So she is able and eligible to be married off instead of given the old widow and remarry option. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, takes Abraham up on this offer. The text tells us that uh, the king of Gerar, Abimelech, takes uh, Sarah into his household. 
And even though this story mirrors a number of beats from the last time Abraham and Sarah pull off this stunt, there are a number of important differences. There are at least three that I'm going to highlight today um, that make this story different and unique. And then after I explain those differences, we'll, we're going to drill down and get more to the heart of the text. But first, I want to tell you that one difference between this story and the story we read in Genesis 12 is that there's no bride price. There's no dowry. The text tells us here that Abimelech comes in and by force he takes Sarah into his household. There is no negotiation about how much um, he should pay as a dowry. That does not happen. And you'll remember in Egypt, that is a part of the story that we highlighted. We said, look, Abraham is wheeling and dealing for a dowry here. He is at least given a number of servants and camels and livestock in exchange uh, for his sister. But this does not happen with Abimelech. Abimelech here is not a good guy. Don't let his future protests of innocence fool you. Um, he is the kind of king who likes to collect women in his harem. And so when Abraham says, look, I did this because I thought there is no fear in God in all this place and they will kill me because of my wife, we have evidence in the text to suggest he's not wrong. He's not wrong. So that's the first difference. We have no record of this negotiation like we do in Egypt, where at the very least, you know, Abraham's a willing participant in the, in the um, sister act, if you will. Uh, but the second difference is that unlike Egypt, God's promise is on the line in a new and unique way. You'll recall from our previous readings that Abraham is under a ticking clock at this moment in Genesis. There is a spiritual ticking clock in the background of our reading. God had started a timeline a few chapters back saying to Abraham, you will have a child with the wife who you think is barren named Sarah within one year. Remember this? Um, that, that God promised and said, well, next year, I'm going to check back in, and you're going to have this child. And this is a child that had been promised to Abraham for decades now, and there's a timeline on it, but it's very hard to imagine you having a child with your wife when your wife has been taken by a pagan king into his harem. So in this instance, unlike the story in Egypt, in Egypt the promises weren't quite so um, strict and thought out and outlined. God had given Abraham a bunch of promises, but they were not connected with a timeline. And so now we have a promise connected with a timeline, and God's promise is on the line. Will God fulfill this promise of a biological heir, and how can God do it when uh, Abraham's wife has been inducted into a pagan king's harem? So the stakes in this section, deception are much higher here. God, uh, Abraham is surely wondering how God is going to play all this out. Third difference. Unlike Egypt, God gets involved almost immediately. Before Abimelech can consummate Sarah's arrival into his household, God shows up in a dream and says, in, in, in essence, step off, bub. You're playing with fire. Step off, or you will surely die. And Abimelech does sort of go, whoa, God, you heard what they told me. I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And, and, and it's interesting because God's response to that is, no, it, you're not innocent. You're not a good guy here. It was I who kept you from sinning. 
Um, and so God says, look, I'm stopping. I'm putting a stop to all this. Return this woman to her rightful husband. Ask for him to pray for you so that you will live. And so when this king acts with so much impunity towards people traveling in his kingdom, again, it's not really a wonder why men lie about their wives as sisters. Abraham is right. He probably would have been killed if he had spoken the truth about the marriage. But God steps in upon the threat of death and sets everything right. And that's what happens in our reading today. Before this plan that Abraham and Sarah Hatch can come into fruition, God steps in, puts the kibosh on everything, sets everything back, and, well, things seem to end well enough. Which is to say there are a number of important differences between Abraham and Sarah's Egypt ploy, where Abraham tried to pass off his wife as a sister and marry her off, and the Gerar ploy, even though they start off the same, there are some serious differences. And even though Abimelech is a pretty awful guy, and even though God steps in, and even though Sarah is returned along with an apology of sorts, even with the dowry that should have been paid, an apology dowry of sorts, the marriage covenant between Sarah and Abraham is once again broken. We're at a place where once again Abraham gives us this you know, spiritual whiplash. On the one hand, when God arrives on his doorstep in the persona of three weary travelers, Abraham knows exactly what to do. He rolls out the red carpet and gives them a feast like a king. But this um, sojourner, Abraham, when he goes into a region with his flocks and his herds and his servants, and he recognizes that the, the king of that region is not a good guy, um, he does not know what to do. And so out of fear for his life, out of fear of these godless heathens, Abraham once again violates the monogamy of his marriage covenant. And what I want to point out today in this reading is, is this link between two spiritual realities. And I hope in making this link, it gives you some insight into your own life. Because I think there is a link between fear and what some Christian leaders have called um, besetting sins. Now, what do I mean by besetting sins? It's a fancy church word. Let me break it down. A besetting sin is when you've got this sort of thing going on in your life, and it's like playing whack-a-mole. Things keep popping up, and you can't seem to find any sort of progress or pattern in dealing with it. Um, a bad habit, an addiction, a default mode of responding to the world. If, any of, if you've got one of those, and it's bad, and it's repetitive, and it's not God's will for your life, um, I imagine somewhere in your spirit, somewhere in your life, there is fear that is driving it. I'll give you uh, an example. I have a friend who had a very loving father growing up. Well, I did have that, but that's not the sermon illustration. The sermon illustration is this. I had a friend who had a very angry father growing up. His father was fickle and jealous and violent. And my friend learned that whenever conflict was happening in his family, his, his default response, he knew what would work, was he would just go up and hide in his bedroom. And if he was quiet and stayed out of the way, his father would never hit him, right? And it worked throughout his childhood, and he figured out that was a way he could deal with the anger that was coming from his father. But then he grew up and he got married. He grew up and he got married. And what would happen was, you know, as any marriage is, there is conflict. There is living together. You just are going to have angry moments of conflict. And so whenever these things happened, his default mode kicked in. And he would avoid the conflict with everything 
he had. He would disengage, he would not engage, he would go quietly up to his room, he would run away. And so over the course of 20 years of growing up, he had this deep-seated fear that any time conflict was happening, um, the thing that would be safe, the thing that would deal with your fear was just to run away. And so fear ruled my friend's life, and it manifested itself in very deep and painful marital discord. So fear was related to my friend's habit of running away from conflict. And I have another friend from my childhood whose single mother was mentally ill. And this mother was unstable. And one day, my friend would step off the school bus, and his mother would say, you're the best son any mother could ask for. I'm so happy you're mine. I'm so proud of you. But then another day, he would step off on the bus, and she would berate him without evidence for using drugs, because she had seen it on TV that kids were using drugs. And she would reach out, and she would grab his face and open his eyelids and stare into his pupils to see if his pupils were dilated. And that was her evidence of whether or not this young man was using drugs. And sometimes she would even punish him because she had the evidence looking into his eyes he was using drugs when this youth group squeaky clean gentleman of a teenager um, was actually um, just doing fine. And so it's a little surprise you might find that my dear friend is now um, divorced and a recovering alcoholic living in a group home and struggling to find sobriety. My friend had learned that the world is not steady and stable, that he should be afraid of every form of love that comes his way because in an instant, anybody who truly loves him will become a voice of punishment and condemnation. Fear ruled my friend's life and it manifested itself in addiction. One more. I have another friend. I have a lot of friends. Not all of them have troubles, but it just so happened to be that today some stories came forward in my prayers. And I have another friend who grew up in a loving home, but it was one that was built on affirmation. Um, she learned when she was very young that if she did the right things for adults, adults would give praise for it. And so this friend of mine strove to work hard and earn the praise of adults. Um, but that work got really hard, and so she began to supplement that hard work with caffeine and sugar and binge eating. And she began to gain serious weight, and into her adulthood, her health began to decline because of her weight. And she found that diet and exercise just weren't in the cards because they were distractions. Um, that if she took time to do diet and exercise, it was less time she could put into her job. It was less time she could put into caring for her family. These were the things that fueled the late-night work that she was doing and that would keep her going. And so the result is a person who overeats because she is afraid of disappointing her family. She's afraid of disappointing her boss and of disappointing her own career ambitions. Fear ruled my friend's life and it manifested itself in gluttony. Fear is perhaps the most powerful motivator a human being can experience outside of love. When people are afraid, they do all sorts of awful things. I used to be a big Star Wars fan. I'm not anymore, but I used to be. <laughs> and one thing Star Wars got right was the power of fear. What does the shriveled green Jedi guru Yoda tell his novice Jedi Luke Skywalker as he trains uh, in the ways of the Force? He says what? Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And as much as I'm not a huge Star Wars guy anymore, that's one thing that Christianity and Star Wars can agree on. The power of fear is deep, and it is overwhelming, and it leads to suffering. 
And such is the crux of our reading today in Genesis. Abraham returns to his ungodly habit of temporarily dissolving his marriage because he is afraid. He is afraid that Abimelech, the king of Gerar, will kill him. He is afraid for his life. He is afraid for his livelihood. And as I've outlined before, as we've outlined before, um, looking at Abraham and Sarah's relationship, I do not think that Sarah is an unwilling participant in this matter. In all likeliness, she too is also afraid of what will happen to her family if she does not play the sister act. One of the gifts of doing my sermons on computers these days is that I have a, a, a search engine where I can look through all of my old sermons. And that's how I make sure I don't give you the same sermon illustration twice. <laughs> I go through and try to, to figure out what my previous sermons have been preached on. And uh, what struck me was that last November, we as a church um, had a opportunity in our Gospel of Luke series to look at Jesus' teaching on fear. This is in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says in that chapter, look, don't fear rejection while speaking in synagogues about me. Jesus says, don't fear where your next meal is going to come from. Don't be afraid about your clothes. Don't be afraid about the necessities that are going to get you through your everyday life. And I could almost take that sermon that I preached last year and uh, bring it forward to the year 2020, but it would have a whole new meaning because we are living in a whole different world. The world has changed a lot since November of last year. It's been 10 months since I focused on fear in the pulpit, but the, the, the same is true, right? Even if you have, here's a recipe for fear um, that gets to the heart of the matter of today, right? Let's start with a cup of COVID-19, a half a cup of economic collapse, four tablespoons of civil rights activism that's turning violent from time to time. Um, add in a third of a cup of divisive uh, presidential election, um, a pinch of a baking soda, of we're in the Mariah Chapel no more and we're in a new space meeting together. And all of a sudden, we've got a recipe for fear because things have changed and they're not the way they used to be before. And fear is in the air and it's bringing out the worst in us and the people around us. But that same quote, uh, that same quote that I had from Marilyn Robinson last year that I shared 10 months ago still stands in September of 2020. She said, no one seems to have an unkind word about fear these days, as unchristian as it surely is. No one has an unkind word to say about fear these days, as unkind as it surely is. The only fear that is valid in the scriptures, if you go through the Bible from front to back, there is one fear that you are allowed to have, and that is the fear of God. Um, you see it in the Psalms, right? Um, Lord, we fear you, not because we're sort of shaking in our boots, but we recognize that if there's an authority we should listen to that there are severe consequences for not listening to, it is probably the creator of the universe. And what does Jesus say? Don't um, worry about those who can kill your body, but worry about those, right? Don't be afraid of people who can hurt your body, but be afraid of someone who can actually do something about your eternal spirit, and as I'm saying here, talking about unchristian fears, I'm preaching myself too, so I'm not going to stand up here and pretend I'm any different. But I mean, are you afraid to go out and attend to the basics of your life because you'll contract COVID-19 and die? Right? Such fear is unchristian. Are you afraid to bring up an issue with your spouse because you'd rather keep the peace than have an opinion that might lead to conflict? Such fear is unchristian. 
Do you start conversations about national politics with this sort of passive-aggressive phrase? It's like, you know, I'm just so worried about the direction of our country. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard that over the past six months, um, I could pay off a student loan, it feels like. And uh, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you glue yourself to the internet or cable news to catch up on things that are going on because you're so afraid of what's happening? It's a manifestation of fear, and such fears are unchristian. Are you afraid of the future to come? A recent study said that in COVID season, 25%, one in four young adults aged 18 to 25, have seriously contemplated suicide since this pandemic hit. Uh, One in 10 adults is the number for everybody. So that's, you know, like two or three people in the room here statistically um, are considered, seriously considered suicide as a result of this pandemic. Um, And so to be worried about the future so that you would be so anxious about the future that you would say the fear of the unknown is, is so oppressive and so awful that I would consider ending my life right now. Such fear, friends, is unchristian. Again, I'm not immune to this sort of thing, right? I've been an anxious wreck this entire pandemic season. I'm afraid of running our church in a way where some of you get sick and maybe die. I'm afraid that if I don't make the right decision, some people are going to leave the church to find somewhere where the church community is back together with coffee hours and um, singing during church. I'm afraid that I'm failing to provide good pastoral care uh, during a difficult season. I'm afraid our church is going to suffer from the political turmoil happening outside its walls. And every single one of these fears that I have about our community together is as unchristian as every other fear that you are dealing with. And when we have fear like this, like Abraham does in our reading today, we expose ourselves to the kinds of besetting and repetitive sins that Abraham models for us. We will get angry, we will overeat, we will engage in retail therapy and buy, uh, spend money on things we don't actually need, we will drink more, we will self-medicate, we will isolate, we will rebel, we will secretly look at dirty things on the internet, we will gamble in the stock market, we will try to control other people since our lives are uncontrollable, we will say nasty things about other people on the internet. That's what fear does. So what's the solution to our besetting sins? How do we live a life free of fear and free of these ingrained and unhelpful coping mechanisms? Well, the Apostle John has an answer for us. He has an answer for you. He says that perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. Um, The way to be rid of fear, dear friends, is to meditate and continually bring into yourself to become attached to the reality that God, through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, loves you. And that he, the one who loves you, is in charge of the entire cosmos. That his love and his mercy uh, move the sun and stars, as Dante famously said. Um, That if Jesus died and rose again, we have, um, and that's the thing, that's what we gather every Sunday to talk about. If Jesus died and rose again, then fundamentally everything is going to be okay. This is how Christians in the past have dealt with torture and death and pandemics and persecution, and it's how we will navigate the season to come as well. Because the flip side of our reading today, right, what is our reading today? A man of God succumbs to fear and abandons his wife. 
It's almost like you could think of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane as the opposite. The flip side of our reading is Jesus praying in the Garden in Gethsemane. He saw the cross to come. He saw the torture and the death and the humiliation, and it, it was weighing on him so heavily. The text tells us that he sweat his own blood out of his skin. And he asked God, he said, God, is there any way to navigate the coming trials that doesn't involve this? And figuring and and realizing there is no other way, the sojourning God who came to walk among the earth um, entered the courts of another king. And this other king signed off on his humiliating and undignified death, thinking that if he could get rid of this groom, then he could continue to rule over this groom's bride. Abraham's story today is of a man failing to trust God against fear and abandoning his bride. Jesus' story is the story of the God-man who trusted against all fear and in the process saved his bride, the church. That story, dear friends, is the story of a God who went to the cross for sinners. That is the perfect love that will cast out your fear. And I tell you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pennsylvania.